Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Darren Hopkins and Grant McEachern, portfolio managers from Richardson Wealth. Working as a team, they've combined their years of experience in investment advising to build a process for identifying and investing in a variety of companies. They've taken over 130 companies public through the CPC program, while also investing in a variety of companies from small, medium, and large caps on behalf of their clients. Now, here's a really interesting thing. They run through the same diligence playbook and process for all the companies they invest in intentionally building relationships with the management teams so they can make highly informed investment decisions. We're talking about having regular one-on-one calls. Now for anyone considering the efficacy of their current advisor or for Pubco CEOs or IR pros out there, this is an interview worth listening to. You'll get an understanding of how deals are scrutinized and hear a great discussion on how this team invests in opportunities. And before we get started, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Darren, Grant, welcome to the show. Hi, Corey. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation because I've known both of you for a number of years. I understand uh, a bit about where you focus in the world of wealth management, investment advising, and, and the brokerage industry. But I also know there's a lot more that we can talk about and, and dive in on. But the best place for us to start is to get an introduction from yourselves and to understand your history in the business and all that. So. I don't know who's going to jump on it, but I'm going to pass it over to you to, to give us some background. Yeah, my name is Grant McEachern. I'm a wealth advisor, portfolio manager at uh, Richardson Wealth. I've been uh, in the business basically since I got out of university, 28 years now, and talking to some guys yesterday. And it's one of those things I knew I wanted to be in the investment business since I've been 10 years old. I bought my first stock when I was 11. It's uh, now getting to help people and uh, making sure they get to have the cash they need for when they retire. That's what it's all about. You know, similar to Grant, I think I uh, was trading stocks before I was legally allowed to have an account, but those were the old days. And so I've always had a fascination with the industry and went back to uh, MBA school, did a first degree in economics, then went back to MBA school. And before I finished, I was hired by a a firm in the industry to uh, go to work for them. And that's where I've stayed ever since. So I'm like Grant. Grant and I are business partners. I'm a portfolio manager by trade. So with that, you've you've built up a business and based in Calgary, I think that you've done a number of, of deals and work in and around the, the oil and gas space. I think you've got interest in real estate. 
and and generally wealth management. I want to know more about your business and how as brokers or investment advisors, you manage your book and really build the assets under management. And, and this is kind of two sides. One, I want to know from an investor side. And then the other is I want to know from if I was a public company or a company going public, how do you work with brokers like yourselves? Maybe that's a further conversation, but to start, what kind of business do you have? Where do you focus and, and how have you built that up? Sure. You know, when, when you look at the, from the investor side, I think we're lucky that we've been dealing with a lot of our clients for a long time. And with that, they have a certain trust and it's all about trust in this business. And we're lucky that those clients have been willing to share our names with their friends. I think investments are a topic that lots of people talk about. And for somebody to recommend you, you know there has to be a high level of trust because nobody wants to recommend somebody and and them to be a flop or have a, a relationship that goes wrong. So we've been super lucky in that we've been able to build our business with referrals. And our clients range from individuals that work in Calgary in the oil and gas business and advising them on how to maybe look outside the oil and gas business for for investments to people living all over Canada in different walks of life. So, you know, we've got people that have been doctors and business owners and you name it, we've got them as clients. So we've been really lucky to have a bunch of different specialties come to us and be able to help them out in different ways. And certainly Darren can talk about it from the investment banking side and taking financing companies. Yeah, not you know early on for me, I, I when I joined the industry, I, I joined the capital market side of it. So my focus was on taking companies public in Canada and in invented in Alberta. Part of the Alberta Advantage was the CPC program called the JCP program way back then in about 1987, I believe it was developed. And so over the years, I've give or take taken 130 companies public that route, and so you get to meet a lot of people as well as meeting with all these companies that we've taken public, there's always people that are associated with that company that want to be part of the public offering. And they had to open accounts in order to do that. So quite a large part of my initial base when I showed it out was people that were wanting to participate in the, this JCP or CPC that their friend was doing as so we open accounts for them. And then as time passed by, they would ask, well, what else do you do? And so we would introduce them to the other parts of our business, the portfolio management side of it. And as people became more comfortable with us, they were happy to transfer more assets in as part of their 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 wealth that they had stored elsewhere. And that was a great help for growing the business. And it certainly exposed us to a lot of different sectors. So as we haven't just been purely one sector advisors, we've had exposure to all these sectors from these different companies we've taken public over the years. Let's talk about taking companies public and kind of the CPC program. And I think that there's, like, if, if I'm going to throw this out, but if, if you're looking at portfolio management theory, you'd say, okay, there's probably a, a small single digit allocation of a portfolio that should be kept for taking, rolling the dice on some of these CPC deals. But they're still exciting. They're fun. And arguably, they're a great part of the Canadian economy. And I wish they were a bigger part of it. When it comes to financing deals down that path, what is your experience perspectives that, that companies should be aware of when doing that? And then we can also hear it from an investor side, but specifically to companies going public, what do they need to know? I'm going to back up a second here. The CPC program, correct, was born here in Alberta. 
And it's spawned probably well north of 3,000 companies right now. And it's been the largest deliverer of listings to the Toronto Stock Exchange. You know, the a very high percentage of listings on Toronto Stock Exchange came through the Alberta Stock Exchange or the Canadian Venture Stock Exchange, the TSX Venture Exchange through the CPC program. And it's wildly successful. It's been studied all around the world. TSX has asked me to travel with them throughout Canada, throughout the United States, speaking about this program because it's fascinating. So many people in different jurisdictions is what we've created up here and how successful it's been. So, so you know, that's, that's the program itself. And that spawned other things such as regular IPOs or special warrants or income trusts that were all born in, in Alberta. But what I guess, what do we look for in a company? Well, there should be a reason for them to be public. Just to go public to create liquidity for existing shareholders is not a good enough reason to go public. Just like everything else, there has to be a hook. People say, you know, I've met companies over the years and they say, well, I have no competitor. And I go, well, no, no, you're wrong there. Because once you go public, you're competing with every other public company in North America, maybe the world, for capital. So what is it that's special about you that's going to attract capital towards your company? And so there have to be hallmarks. You, you have to have, there has to be growth. People don't want to buy a company that, that doesn't grow. Okay? It may as well stay private, right? It has to be a big market. A lot of times it has to be a market bigger than just Canada. Canada's generally not a big enough market to support, you know, especially in the tech sector and, and these different sectors. You need to have worldwide acceptance of what you do. You have to have quality management. You have to have, if not a track record of the company itself, a track record of the individuals in the company is critically important. And we've always been believers if you know if that person can has done it before, they can probably do it again. So these are all the different things we look for in a company as to should they go public and you know what are hallmarks of a good public company. So where we took that and we've created our advantage is that we took that and we said, well, you know, I'm meeting with CEOs and CFOs of all these small companies and I'm sitting down with them, going through their books, going through their financial statements, understanding their business, site visits. And, and you know, I laugh. I was talking the other day with a friend of mine about some of the site visits I've done over the years. And, you know, I brought up one site visit where I went to just follow up with the company and, and verify they had what they had. And it was a gaming company and they were vending in a gaming facility in Frederick, New Brunswick on an indigenous reservation. And so I showed up at two in the morning on a late flight through Toronto and my Chrysler K car. And I had to drive out to the St. Mary's reservation and go check out this bingo hall. But, you know, that's the kind of the depth that we did on these small companies. And so we said, well, why can't we do this on the big companies too? Right. Like, so, you know, we've always started back then and we still do it now. I'll call up the CEO or CFO of, of a multi-billion dollar company and say, here's who I am. You know, we're interested in investing in your company, but I'd really like to understand it better. I'd like to meet with you and the CEO and the CFO and ask you some candid questions, straight up questions. And it really helps us understand these companies and so the, we're saying to a client, we think you should buy this company. And they say, well, why? Well, here's the reason why. We've done hours of due diligence. We've gone out to the site. We've met with the CEO. We met with the CFO. We've asked experts around the industry, like, what do you think of this company? What do you think of the individuals? What do you think of the market? And it really helps us develop a very high comfort level when we're going to invest in a company. And, and so that's, you know, kind of long answer to your question about, what makes for a good public company or a company starting out? Well, there's there all these things and we've taken what we've learned from what makes a good company go public and we've 
extrapolated that and put it onto existing public companies and larger companies that we invest in. And, and Grant probably wants to add something to that because he's got a level of expertise that goes beyond what I have in terms of, well, what does it look like at the top when you're looking at these big companies? So Grant, why don't you go ahead? Yeah. You know, I think if you talk to most advisors, they wouldn't be able to tell you the story behind any of the companies they own. And we can tell you the story behind every company we own. That's the only reason we buy companies. And, you know, it's from big companies and it's surprising how easy it is to talk to a CFO of a 10 or 15 or $30 billion company. They are willing to talk and spend time especially when you have intelligent conversations with them and educated. We come in having you know reviewed their financials and know their business. If it's large enough, we've probably used their product or been to their sites or whatever, you know, just through normal course. And, you know, it's a little bit of Peter Lynch's buying the stuff, you know, so a lot of it's that, but then you have to, once you talk to the management and, you know, after, you know, we've been doing this for 28 years, you've talked to thousands of management teams, you know, who's successful you get a feel for what those traits are that are successful in running a public company. Then it comes a little bit to portfolio selection. So this is where Darren and I will butt heads a little bit in that we'll find lots of companies in certain areas, but doesn't diversify a client's portfolio. And there has to be some diversification. So that's where we run portfolio management techniques of diversification, not being concentrated. You know, lots of guys in Calgary have too much oil and gas prior to 2014. Probably since 2014, people haven't had enough oil and gas. So those are things that we try and manage actively is where's our exposure for a client and every client's different. And we don't have one portfolio that looks like another. Everybody, everything's custom for us, which I think is one of our advantages. You know, you were saying that everybody's going to manage products. Well, you don't get diversification or, or you don't get customization in that. So, you know, we have a lot of levers that we can pull that uh, sort of make every portfolio unique. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one from managing actually managing money. And one of our past guests, I was chatting about good brokers and how hard it is to find. And and I think you, you hit on a point there of actually working with brokers who understand your personal financial situations to be able to pull the levers to to access or exercise tax issues or or, or tax opportunities whatever it may be. And then ultimately retirement plan. Let's face it, that's that's what we're doing. We're building wealth for our retirement. So keeping that in mind. Corey, the other important the other important thing is that over the years, you know, we've talked to thousands of people in every different industry. And Grant and I have this, you know, debate daily when we're talking about a company and kind of challenging each other on it to make sure that we've done all the work. But also we're quite every single time we look at something, we reach out to people that we met over the years that are experts in particular areas. And we run it by them. And say, what do you think about this? And, you know, and, and some of the, you know, some people we know, like my friend, Chris Bloomer has worked in every sector of the oil industry from upstream to downstream to midstream. And so if I see a service company or an oil and gas company, I'll give them a call and say, Hey, what do you, what do you know about these guys? What do you think mm. of these guys? Right. The Kimmel family out of Toronto, you know, uh, unbelievably successful second, third generation real estate family that owns thousands of apartment units in the United States. If I see a real estate deal, I'll call up Sean Kimmel and say, Sean, like you guys have generations of experience in this field. What do you think of this? And he'll say, oh, yeah, Darren, have you thought about this? Or did you look at that? Or we know these guys from this deal kind of thing. And so it's always, you know, always reaching out and making that extra effort to use our resources to find out things that you're not going to find out from an analyst report or reading about 
paper or, or reading their their quarterly reports. You need to dig deeper. And it's actually like I love doing it. Like it's it's interesting talking to all these people and getting their perspectives and finding out things that you would never even thought of to ask when you reach out to people. Yeah. Something I, I wasn't aware of until, you know, we just talked recently, Darren. It was that you guys have a focus on real estate as part of your portfolio. And so I want to get into that. I want to ask questions in and around that. But before we do, I'm, I'm really curious as when it comes to investor relations and when it comes to companies communicating to, to money managers, to portfolio managers, what have you seen as best practices? What have you seen where they come forward in a way you're like, this is a great story and all of the logic, all the facts and figures support it. When, when has that, that golden goose arrived and what did that look like for you? You know, I would say uh, over the years we've met with so many people is that the thing I always come back to is consistency, is that when I meet with somebody and they say, here's where we're at, here's where we want to be at in three months, six months, 12 months. And then I'll revisit with that company in three months, six months, and 12 months. And I'll say, okay, let me pull up the file. And well, here's what you told me three months ago. And oh, actually, you're there. And so that's critically important for me is that they're making realistic projections and they're achieving them, which tells me they know their business. Mm. And I'm not impressed with companies to come in and say, well, the market's 10 billion and we want to be 1% of it. And my question is, well, well, how are you going to be 1% of it? That's the more interesting question here and more relevant question is how you're going to be 1% of the market. So, so I don't like fluffy press releases where they just put out press release every week just to keep news flow. Out. I want to see meaningful information come out. I want to see that management takes calls when they have a good press release and when they have a bad press release, when management takes calls, right? And we just went through, I went through uh, with a company here that's, um, I don't want to be specific to who they are, but let's just say they're in the coffee industry. And I sent a list of questions to them and I said, I'd like to meet with the CEO and CFO. And they sent me a thing back and said, well, don't you read our press releases or look at our annual report? And I was like, well, yeah, I do, but that's generated some questions for me. And I would like to ask, ask these questions kind of thing. And, and the answer was, well, no, our, we don't do that. And, and this is a small cap company. And I was mm. like, why are you public, right? Like, yeah. I just put a big X beside your name because I'm never buying your shares, right? Because because of that attitude kind of thing, right? Whereas there are other companies, like I, you know, I think of Transalta, for example, huge company. And I emailed Don Farrell and then John Cousinoras, who's the new CEO, over the years I've emailed about both of them. And they both responded to me immediately and said, hey, thanks for contacting us. Love to set up here. Here's my executive assistant. They will work out a time where we can have a call, but thanks for being interested and, and let's have that call, right? And you know, this is TransAlta. This is a huge company, right? And you know, I went to MBA school with an individual who ended up being uh, investor relations for Canadian Pacific. And I always tell the story that, Canadian Pacific, the most recognized name in Canada, needed investor relations that every other public company needs investor relations. Because if you don't know who they are, where have you been? Right? So, so there's the benchmark. Everybody below that has to have investor relations. Isn't it shocking that companies come out of the gate and it's like, you have to sell your shares. You have to sell your story. But if somebody is going to reach out and say, can I have more information? They're like, we don't do it that way. It's kind of like, how do you sell your products or your service if you can't even sell your story? It just is, 
like it, it infuriates me. You should not be a public company. That's that's a terrible way to approach it. So you know, one of those things that I find frustrating is companies that don't keep a long history of their conference calls. Right, every company is doing quarterly conference calls. Keep them on the website. They're surprised at how many don't have it up there because it's a great way to learn. Like I forget about the comments that the CEO and CFO make, but the questions and how they answer them. You can get a lot out of even listening to a year old one and what questions were asked then, hmm. what promises did they make like Darren's talking about, and now compare them to, to today. But lots of companies just keep the most recent one up there. Today, keeping data up on the internet isn't that expensive, right? Every, you know, storage is basically free. So it's not an issue. You know, maybe it's a matter of being accountable. And I just think it's too easy to to take them down. So guys do. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. I think one of our past guests as well, she, her name's Cody Sanchez, formerly the Goldman Sachs. And I think um, it was a, another big, big name. And her her quote that I loved was that she said, the best of the best com- companies over communicate. And I was like, huh. That's uh, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. So let's let's talk and probably in a meaningful way too, not just for sake yeah. of communicating, but they have, they have a message, they have yeah. a, a strategy behind it. Yeah, and Darren, like you were saying, just the like just fluff of of news flow. Forget it, piss off. We don't need that. Yeah, let's talk about real estate and and what you're doing there. It's it's of interest to myself and. I think with the changing rate environments, with the low occupancies, with like, there's just all sorts of different variables there that could be affecting real estate investments. But I want to know more about your business and how you approach it, how you look at it. By and large, I like companies that are simple to understand. I mean, what do you do and how do you make money doing it? Right. Those are two critical things, right? Because if you can't answer either of those questions, then, then I moved on. Like, I'm not interested. So, so the, the great thing about real estate is, is that it's pretty easy to understand what they do and how they make money doing it. And so how efficient are they at doing that? And it's, I like demographics, but I also like current demographics because I remember 20 years ago when, oh, I forgot the guy's name now. I think we had him as a guest speaker 20 some odd years ago. It was a guy that did uh the book about demographics and the changing demographics and Roger you know, Kent, was it or, or, yeah. or something like that. Something. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like retirement homes are the place to invest because all these baby boomers are going to retire. Right. And so everybody rushed out and bought retirement homes kind of thing. Yeah. Except that demographic was 25 or 30 years in the future. Kind of right. <laughs> and so it just didn't work because you sat holding these retirement homes that were Poor performers for the next 18 years because the demographic hadn't moved there yet. Hmm. And so with the, you know, the advantage of the internet and data collection now is you're able to see like real-time demographics and Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation puts out great demographics. And and when you look at Canada, multifamily in Canada, and I'm not going to name any names here, I'm just going to talk about the, the situation, is that there are hardly any purpose-built apartments built in the last 40 years in Canada. There's 450,000, minimum 450,000 new immigrants coming to Canada every single year now. You have foreign students who love Canada that haven't been here for two years and that are coming back to Canada. And then you have the unfortunate situation with Ukraine where we have more people from Ukraine coming here. And so you add it all up and you go like, there are not enough rental units in Canada to support that. So that's the bad news. But what's the, you know, the good news is for an investor is, well, that means apartment rents are going up. And if you're an investor in that sector, 
then you know that that's good for those companies. And and I think it's a phenomenon across North America too. As we read a lot, read a lot of the United States data, there are also a shortage of rental properties in the United States. And so we say, okay, well, what areas of real estate does that affect? And that's where we go and look at. So and over the years, we've been in, you know I I took five or six real estate companies public. We have great contacts within the real estate industry, so we can follow up and ask questions to people in the industry. What are you seeing on the ground? You know, what are you seeing in your area? And so it just helps us guide us towards investment decisions on what areas to be focused on. And and I it, like I said, it's a really great lesson in demographics. Demographics awesome, but how does it affect the current situation? Not twenty years down the road, right? And so kind of like within the next uh, five, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, and that's where you start to think like like you think more like a like a pension fund investment as opposed to. The next 30 day investment and you know grant's got great experience in that area um from some of his board positions and you know he, he can chat about that but that's also what helps guides our overall philosophy great you want to build on that at all yeah you know and i you know i think when we look at companies in general i think one of the basis of every investment before we really take a deep dive is cash flow and that's a great thing about real estate is it's true cash flow you know, and through COVID, we've learned a few things about what cash flow is real solid and which isn't, and what categories. Industrial has been a huge area. I think it's maybe now getting to the point where there's too much money chasing it. So valuations have gotten a little crazy. Single family homes, certainly in the US, has been on the rental side is a new category that hasn't really been institutional. It's been much more individual. So there's certainly new areas opening up in that space. And even over the last 10, 15 years, we've bought ETFs on home builders or building supplies or different areas that we just saw opportunities at. And they'd be much shorter term opportunities, you know, might be a year holder, two year holder, where most of the stuff we buy is five, 10 year kind of uh, time horizons. But sometimes we just see valuation opportunities that just seem off and we'll just go into a sector and buy it. So, you know, housing has been one area that we've been successful a couple times in the past in that area. So, you know, when you're comfortable with a sector like real estate, you can see other opportunities sometimes and, and take short term opportunities that are just misvalued misvaluation, which happens in the public market all the time. How do you approach valuing or looking at the value of, of, of real estate organizations? And I ask when, especially in, in the current situation, one, we, we've got huge demand, but how much can somebody actually pay to, to rent an apartment or to rent a shoebox now? And then the other side, you've got increasing an increasing rate environment, which impacts the cash flow of the residential or the real estate organization. If you're building new ground up, which doesn't seem to happen a lot, all the costs, you know, some of are, you know, double, even triple of what they were a few years back. There's so many variables here. Where do you start to look at and say, okay, this is how we're, we're actually going to value this organization over a different one? On the, on the real estate, it's really just let's get right down to the cash flow and what kind of cash flow are they, are they uh, streaming? You know, what's the debt on the company? Are they highly leveraged? Uh, how manageable is the debt? Uh, what do the leases look like? And you know, one thing with, with multifamily is that the average lease is one year long. Mm. Right? And so in an inflationary environment, the landlord has the opportunity to increase the rent every year as opposed to in some commercial leases that might be five or 10 or 15 years long, 
the landlord might be stuck with that rent in a rising rate or inflationary environment, right? So that's you know one good thing about multifamily is that they are able to adjust fairly quickly. But really looking at the cash flow and also who is your cash flow coming from? And during COVID, we spent a lot of time on the phone with the CEOs and CFOs of real estate companies saying, are your tenants paying? That's what I want to know. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, are your tenants paying the rent kind of thing? Are their businesses open and so on? And remarkably, one sector, and, and you know, I can talk about this company now because they're no longer public, was a company called MGM Growth Properties on New York that owned all the, the hotels for MGM Resort and casinos. And you know, historically, people would, analysts would look at them and say, well, it's kind of risky because they only have one tenant, right? They don't have 500 tenants. Right. And through COVID, what we learned was, well, their one tenant, there was zero chance they weren't going to pay the rent, right? Like MGM Casinos was not going to miss a rent payment on one of their buildings. And them being a public company, you could drill right down and look at their financial statements, how much cash they had on hand, and really quickly determine, can that tenant pay the rent? Whereas when you had maybe a mall with 400 individual businesses in the mall, it was impossible to drill down to those 400 individual businesses, which were likely private businesses, to determine what's the health of your tenant. So the whole evaluation of risk got flipped on its head in the, this situation. One tenant was like awesome right? because yes. they could pay the rent kind of right? and stuff. So. And it's, you know, like, and we talked to that company, fortunately, that the CEO of MGM Properties uh, is a local Calgary guy originally that, that we know, and uh, he was more than happy to take our call and walk us through what the company is experiencing and, and what the strip was experiencing and so on and give us great comfort that, boy, their tenants paying the rent, right? Like, this is a great opportunity, right? And stuff. So it reminds me of uh, when I spoke with Rick Rule and him talking about how he evaluates companies. And from a speculation standpoint of he invests in finding gold in the ground or finding precious metals. And one thing that he hit on was if I look at your board of directors, you know, I'm loosely quoting here, and I see a a director on there who has a bunch of experience with a porphyry deposit and all you're focusing on is a different geological formation. I look and I'm like, what's the purpose of this? And it's so the reason why I point that out is to me, the analysis there is at a wholly different level. And it sounds like your approach as well is, is at that different level of being able to tap into the people who really know these certain kind of assets or these certain areas. And like, who would have thought about MGM? It's a really interesting case there, what you just put forward. Yeah. And that's just, you know, like I said, it, it all comes back to just knowing people from all these years kind of thing, right? And, you know, if, if we see a biotech deal, what do I know about biotech? Right? I took bio 201 at university and I think I got a C plus, mm-hmm. right? If I see a yeah. biotech deal, my first call is to a longtime friend of mine who was 15 or 20 years with Bristol Myers and then 20 years with a biotech startup. I call him and go, what do you think of this? Right? And he has the expertise to within 10 minutes, drill through it quickly and come back to me and say, don't waste your time. Or, you know, if you'd like, Darren, I'll have a call with these guys and give you more insight into it. Kind of thing, right. But, but it's, you know, it's just having that, that knowledge base of individuals that are experts in different areas that allows us to kind of have that strategic advantage of being able to find out about these companies. Right. And, and find out about companies that maybe we never would have thought of these companies before. What about when a deal goes sideways? It doesn't work out to what your thesis was. How do you how do you handle this? 
It's never happened to us, Corey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you approach this? Well, it's you know the first question Grant and I are asked is we turn to each other and go, "Did we miss something? Like, did, is there something there we just didn't see?" And then and we walk all the way through it and say. Well, if they're, okay, let's go back and let's meet with the company. Let's do, is there something broken with the company? Because if something's broken, then we're just likely to take our lumps and exit. Hmm. But if it's not broken and it's just a misunderstanding of the market, then we're going to say, well, you know what? We probably need to add more, right? And I can think of a couple examples. Uh, Student Transport, I think was the name of the company. You know, 14,000 yellow school buses in the United States. Their stock was hammered. It was way down and, and I couldn't understand it. Right. So we spent a lot of time when I read the analyst. The analyst had this big hang up about their leases on their buses. And they didn't think that they they were valuing the leases correctly or something. So I spent a couple hours with the CFO and had them walk me through the leases on their buses. And what was creating the anomaly is they had 10 year leases on the buses. But he said, these buses there and he goes, but they've got like four and a half to five years left after the lease. So whereas our competitors keep turning these buses over, when the lease expires, we buy out the lease because our buyout on the lease is a lot less than what the bus is worth. And then we get an extra three or four or five years. The maintenance is a little higher. He goes, but we just lowered our, our lease cost on a bus by probably two thirds because now we're running this bus out until somebody takes it and parks it and turns it into a, a camper or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. And so we went through that and I go, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Like these guys are smart. And we said, no, we've we got to add to this position kind of thing. And, and I think circa a year later, the company got taken out of maybe double what we were in at kind of thing, because it was simple. It was just yellow school buses in the United States. It took kids to school, right? Like there's no magic here, right? Like it's they're delivering kids to school. There's no alternative form of transportation. That's it. Right stuff. So that's, a, that's an interesting one, right? And as a public company, maybe it wasn't a great candidate as a public company. It had no sex appeal. It it just wasn't doing. It, it gets orphaned in a sense. And then it sounds like you guys were able to to identify this, get in, ride it out, and then who knows, like private equity or somebody steps in and says this is a great asset and takes it out. And it's a cash flow business, like you say, that's not very sexy. It is what it is, right? And uh, there are companies that get orphaned out there and they're great businesses, but people don't follow them and they just get too small. You know, lots of people don't want to buy. I don't know how big student transportation is when we were bought in market cap wise, but it was probably a couple hundred million, something like that. Lots of guys don't want to play in that space, you know, much like you were saying earlier, they're buying managed money funds or whatever. and we have the confidence because, or we can have the confidence to buy something like that because of our track record and having done this so many times. So, you know, and our clients also have now done it enough with us that they've got patience when something goes wrong. You know, I think the other one that popped to my mind was uh, TransAlta. We started buying that probably 2013. Stock had been down significantly to this point and we got looking at it where electricity prices basically going to go in Alberta and we thought they were going to go up and start buying the stock. And then it, continued to drop. And that's one of those times where, you know, the management kept talking to us. The executive team from TransAlta came to our office probably five times over five years 
and sat down with us. And we probably talked to him another 20 times in between there. And we're fairly confident that the the business was going to turn around. And, you know, then it got into changing from coal fired to gas fired, which they've just completed earlier than they planned, lower cost. And now their, you know, stock is doing well, but that's, you know, nine years later, you have to have some patience on some of these things to go through it as well. And be looking at the business and going, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. What's from a, from a money management perspective, when you look at deals, some of the, you know, smaller companies, companies that you've taken public or these smaller market caps, what kind of timeframes do you put on them? This, this student transportation, a couple hundred million dollar market cap. It's not a big, a big company. When would you look at that and you go, okay, it's time to take our profit, time to take the money off the table? Like, how do you, how do you manage that? I, th- I think when it, when there's a better alternative for that money, that's at a better valuation, right? So if if we buy th- bought this thing at four times cash flow, it's now twelve times cash flow, and I've got another compelling opportunity that's at seven times cash flow. Then I go, okay, that's time to move that money from 12 times cash flow over to seven times cash flow, right? And as long as, and also that ties in with, do we believe that company is, is fully valued at the cash flow multiple they're trading at, right? Like, is that pretty rich? Is that historically at the high end or comparables there kind of thing? If the answers are yes, then it's time to move on, right? And, and, and that's the kind of, you know, metric. And I, going back to my earlier comment, well, they're all competing for capital. It's the same thing. Right. So we have our clients capital. And if we can move it from 12 times cash flow to seven times cash flow multiple in a, in a equally as compelling business opportunity, then let's go there. Because again, we've got more upside, but we also got a lot of downside protection built in now. Gotcha. Yeah. I see. I see the methodology there and, and, and how you look at it. Yeah. I want to throw this question out and hopefully it's a fun one. Best deals you've been a part of, like just the most memorable deals you've been a part of. What are they? Well, it's, you know, it's hard to beat the CPCs, right? Because that's where the, the most sex appeal is. That's where you have the, the boom that's the and casino, the man. Like that's the, yeah. <laughs> I would say that I took a company public many years ago called Palmerejo. It was a CPC, a 20 cent CPC. And I got introduced to an individual named David Fennell, who, some people in Alberta might recognize him. He won five great cups with the Edmonton Eskimos, Dr. Death, they called him. And you know, Dave went on to law school after football and then into mining and has been a phenomenally successful mining entrepreneur over the years. And he had an Australian listed company that had a gold asset in Mexico or silver asset in Mexico that was getting no appreciation in the market. So they spun it out of there, they put it into our CPC, 20 cents a share and circa, I think less than three years later, he sold it to Coeur d'Alene Mines at $11 and 30 cents a share, right? Just um, turned out to be, I think the second or third largest silver discovery in, in all of North America, just a amazing success. That was exciting watching it, you know, watching it go, go up kind of thing. So that was, um, that was a, a, a pretty exciting one for me. And on a large cap things, you know what? It's hard to beat MGM properties because it's Vegas, right? Like, and it's so it, you combine the stock market and Vegas and a stock that goes up, like it's hard to beat that, right? So, so that was a pretty good one for us also. Hmm. Interesting. What about you, Grant? You know, most of the ones that I think about are, you know, from further back in my career, earlier in my career, you know, when I was younger, I had younger clients and they were all willing to roll the dice a little bit more than 
what we do today. We've all learned and, you know, it's, it's, I think the market's different. It's harder to roll the dice, but like, I remember being in the business in 2000 and tech stocks at that time were rock and roll. And I remember I had a couple clients and they were just tied into a couple of these momentum plays and these stocks would be insane. Like, you know, over a month they would double and you just don't see that anymore. And probably for good reason. There's certainly been some wild times as sectors. You know, when I started in the business in 93, 94, oil and gas was just really starting to take off. So there was all these juniors that were, you know, 20 cents going to two bucks. And it was, it was fun back then. And, you know, there's not IPOs coming out at 20 cents going to two bucks anymore. Um, with oil and gas, you know, these guys would raise not a million bucks maybe and go and drill some wells. Well, you can't drill a well for a million bucks today. So, you know, it's the game changed a little bit, unfortunately. It was certainly fun for young guys back in the back in the day who, you know, didn't have responsibilities to go along with the, trying to make ends meet. If we go down memory lane, I remember I moved to Calgary when the market just came off. And you know you're see, like the the city, the energy was still there, but you're seeing young bucks drive around uh, in brand new Porsches on options they haven't been able to cash, kind of stuff, right? Like it was wild. I'm curious though, with right now, I mean, oil is is seeing you know all time, if not near all time highs, and I think it's come off, if I'm not mistaken. But the the industry in Alberta doesn't have that same froth like it did back in kind of 07, 08. That, I think that was the time frame. What's different now? Well, back, you know, back when Grant and I started in 93, 94, by the time we got to 98, 99, I'm going to say there were seven or 800 junior oil and gas companies in Calgary. Wow. Public, public companies. No. Yeah. Yeah. And and over a hundred intermediates. So like every office building had 15 or 20 junior oil and gas companies in there. And so when you circle, circa move forward to now, I don't know how many public junior oil and gas companies there are. Less than 100, I'm going to guess. Intermediates, 25 maybe, public. Anything right? So it's totally different, right? Like it, it was, um, you know, I think of Helena, Montana, the story about Helena, Montana 100 years ago or 150 years, whenever they discovered gold. You know, they in Helena, Montana, they had a 1,000 millionaires like 100 and some odd years ago from gold kind of thing, right? So you can wow, imagine yeah. what that time the town was like they, they were building buildings there were saloons there were gaming houses it was on fire right well to a lesser extent that was calgary right they had all these oil and gas companies they're sponsoring chuck wagons and parties and you know it, it was just a, a different environment than it is now for sure hmm. yeah what do you what do you think about that grant i mean is it, is it the kind of thing where like different environment but what is the environment now and, and is there still the possibility of, of seeing that come back? And it's almost a self-serving question, but please, yeah, what are your thoughts? I would say there's, the other side of it is there's a little more capital discipline and, you know, there's certainly a lot less debt in the oil and gas business. So companies have reduced their debt, but mostly so they're more in control of their balance sheets and, you know, don't have to worry about a bank calling them up on a Friday and going, we're pulling your line. So there's that component, which has reduced share count, which is, you know, certainly dividends are something that, you know, we used to see it through the royalty trusts, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we saw the royalty trusts as the vehicle for paying out income, but the oil and gas business 
you know, is very volatile because of that commodity underlying their cash flow. So we're always a little suspect for junior intermediate companies paying dividends in a commodity business. You know, the big guys, Canadian Natural or Suncor, you know, have the stability that they can do it. So I think there's a, those are a few things that have reduced the number of companies. And there's a lot of private companies out there in the oil and gas business, which, you know, large private companies, which didn't exist 15 years ago as well. How that changes, you know, the the feel is the option side. You know, there's not people, you know, turning, you know, zero risk option grant into a million bucks and going out and buying a new house. That's the part that's not happening as much in the last, you know, since 2014, basically. Yeah, and and uh, huge consolidation, I would imagine, over the last 20, 30 years as well. And the companies, you know, we've all seen them where they hire way too many people and then 2014 comes and there's a downturn and they have to lay everybody off and they realize that they can get along with a lot less people. And technology certainly had an impact too. You just need less people for a lot of the stuff you can do, um, you know, where you can put a computer to work. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, let's also talk about, I mean, in the experience you've had, in both bringing companies public and then managing money, I'm, I'm curious about some of the characters you've you've worked with or have come to know over the years. I'm sure there's some some pretty you know pretty out there people. One that comes to mind is Morgan Smed, who's been on a couple of times. Like you know, all time favorite hero kind of guy. Like he is so outspoken, hell of an entrepreneur, awesome story. Who else comes to mind for you guys? Well, Smed's hard to beat, right? I remember him. I remember him telling me when he. When he was when he was broke, and a friend of his loaned him his house in Mount Royal, and Morgan said him and his family moved to Mount Royal, and he said it was a Beverly Hillbillies coming to Mount Royal is what he said. Right? So, <laughs> so, but uh, you know, I think some quotes of guys I've met over the years, and and Morgan's is a great one. And he told me when he sold his first company, he signed on for a number of years, and he had to go to the management meetings. And after about three management meetings, he stopped going, and the CEO called him up and said, "Morgan's, you're supposed to be at these meetings. Why aren't you there?" he said, what's the point? He goes, all your managers agree on everything. He goes, so why bother going to the meetings? He goes, I like going to meetings where the managers disagree with each other. He goes, that's when real productivity happens, kind of thing, when change happens, kind of thing, right, and stuff. And so, that, you know, I always remember that is a very good lesson. Um, but, you know, some of the characters we met, like, uh, you know, uh, David Fennell has got some wonderful quotes over the years that he's given to me. And, you know, this guy's probably put five or six uh, minds from – Finding them into production, which is like unheard of in this in the junior industry. And um, I asked him one time. Uh, I said, "Dave, you know, I think the company's a little vulnerable for like a big guy coming to take you out, kind of thing. Like, are you worried about that?" And he said, "Darren, he said, Mrs. Fennell raised ugly children, not dumb ones." He said, "Right." So <laughs> I always laugh at that because uh, uh, he was just so you know deadpan delivery on it. But um, you know, some of the some of the guys say, you know. Blair Richardson, who no relation to the Richardson family that, that we work for, uh, out of uh, Denver, Colorado, he's a Canadian. He was you know, uh, managing partner in Morgan Stanley Asia, Morgan Stanley Canada, and he started up a junior real estate company here as a CPC, and I did it for him. And they went out on the road to raise money. And, you know, this is a guy that was talking in billions before when he was at Morgan Stanley. Now suddenly he has to raise $7 million for this little company. And his partner, Ian, was quite a large individual and I remember Blair telling me, uh, and this is just a you know testimony to how hard you have to work no matter who you are to raise money and compete for capital. 
And he said, Darren, he goes, we rented a car in Calgary and we drove up north to Edmonton. And then we came back down south. We went east. We went all the way to Regina, Saskatoon, and every small town in between. He goes, Darren, he goes, some of the investor meetings we did were so small that the entire audience couldn't put their arms around Ian, he said, right? So, so uh, it, it's, you know, like that's a, a great one for companies raising money. Like this is a guy who was vice chair of Morgan Stanley Asia in Canada. And he was out in a rented car with his CFO driving to every small town to talk to investors to raise money kind of thing, right? Stuff. So, so I uh, remember it's those. Kind of, those that's such an interesting story to just touch on the, the fact that it's not glorious raising capital. Right. I think some yeah. people look at the business as like, oh, the, the sex appeal and how great it is. And, and, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur and, and go raise money and, and, you know, take on whatever opportunity. It's like, there's, there's zero glory to it until it's finally all done successfully. Yeah. Who else? Grant, what about you? Yeah, you know, the guys that I think about are, you know, guys that have um, started the money management business in Calgary. Um, you know, and Calgary wasn't a center for finance for a long time. But you look at a guy like Rob Peters, who, you know, unfortunately just passed away here recently. You know, he um, revolutionized oil and gas financing in Canada in starting that business here. Guys like Dave Bissett, you know, starting oh, uh, money management. Peters Capital? Or no, who was, who was which company was? Uh, Peters & Co. Peters and Co. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. You know, but Dave Bissett, you know, starting a man- money management firm here, you know, I don't know when he did, but a long time ago and grinding away at it, trying to convince people that you can manage money out of Calgary. And I don't know what, how big they got when Fidelity or um, I forgot who bought them, but whoever bought them, Franklin Templeton uh, bought them and, you know, they were managing billions and billions, but started out grinding away, managing millions. And, uh, you know, you can do anything from Calgary is, uh, the, the thing that's happened over the last, you know, 50 years is it's changed a lot. And now Calgary is one of those centers of capital in Canada. You know, and you think back to, you know, the GMP guys that started first energy guys, you know, I used to work at first marathon, you know, and they were big in the resource business and, you know, just all the characters that go into these firms to, to get them started. It's, uh, you know, Calgary's a pretty interesting place. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. What about the, the common threads, the characteristics of the entrepreneurs who are raising capital from you, who have been successful? What comes to mind if I was to use the word common thread? What would you find unified between them? You know, I would say extremely well organized, able to anticipate any question anybody's going to ask them, like in-depth knowledge of their business. They don't take setbacks. You know, they keep plodding through. They keep grinding away. They keep working at it. If you ask a question, they don't have the answer. They get you the answer right away. I, I just see that as a common thread. For sure, some ego has to be uh, there. Um Chip on their shoulder is always pretty good also, right? If somebody's got an ax to grind and they need to, they're going to prove, you know, I, I think that's uh, maybe a, a good trait to have. And it, you know, I think that not all of the hard work pays off because a bunch of them do fail, right? But I think once you prove to people, and I go back to this TGS properties with Blair Richardson, right? Blair would meet with us at least every three months and give us updates on TGS properties and every time he met with, he had exceeded what he had told us in the prior meeting, always, right? And he delivered and he grew the company, split it into, sold parts of the company off, 
incredibly successful. And he just sent me an email, I think last week, saying, uh, Darren, he goes, uh, we just closed our most recent fund. Um, he's with Bow River Capital out of Denver now is where he, he lives. $560 million US they raised in their most recent fund. And so that's over, you know, from 20 years from the start inception with TGS to now. But it just shows you uh, if you do or have a repeatable track record of you don't need to knock it out of the park every time, but as long as you make people money every time, you deliver what you promise, you take their calls, you work hard, um, you know, that that's kind of all those different things uh, is what I like to see. And also, if they've done it before, then they can probably do it again. Yeah. Right? I so just want to hit on a point there. It's almost a subjective compound interest of being able to build the trust within those who are writing checks for you. And skin in the game also. I had a um, finance prof, new venture finance prof, uh, Derek Mather. I think he passed away a number of years ago. You know, He said, always ask how much they've got invested. And he goes, and it doesn't matter if what they have invested is relevant to Bill Gates. It matters if it's relevant to that person. So if he's got a hundred grand in, but that's his last hundred grand, he goes, that's more important than the guy's put in 10 million that's worth a hundred million. Right. He said, you know, that's what is important. And along that same lines of skin in the game, make sure they're not in it for the paycheck. Right. If they're making two or three or four hundred grand coming out of the company, they're in it for the wrong reason. They should be taking a minimal daily cash flow and looking for the big win on selling the company or, you know, paying dividend or whatever down the road. If I could just add one more there, you know, I think of a local guy who's done fantastic is uh, Sam Coleus with Boardwalk. And I met Sam and Rob Jeremiah, wonderful guys. I met them 20 plus years ago when Boardwalk was in its early stages. And I always like to ask the guys, what kind of car do you drive back then, right? And Sam said, I got a 10-year-old Jeep Wagoneer. Kind of thing. I said, perfect, right? Like that resonated with me. And you can see the history of that company from then until now. He's lived that, right? Now, they're phenomenally successful now. I'm pretty sure he doesn't drive a 10-year-old Jeep Wagoneer anymore. But at that stage of the game, that's what I wanted to hear, right? That his money was company and he wasn't using the company to finance his lifestyle. It's funny when from our conversation here, I reflect on deals that I've been a part of and, and then the brokers who have backed them. And perhaps this is not good for, you know, I'm not making myself sound great here, but in seeing those deals... Uh, that we that we worked on, that the fact that the brokers actually put their clients' money into them is mind-boggling to me when I look back at that. The lack of due diligence, the lack of really understanding the business. I've spoken with other brokers, some who who were baffled by just me asking about the cap table when I was talking to the broker. Right? What do you, what do you mean by the cap structure? What do you mean by the cap table? And I mean like. What do you mean by asking me? What do I mean? And so I'm, I'm sharing this because in speaking with you now, it's you guys are outstanding in that sense. You don't have, there's not a lot of brokers out there who do the work that you do. Uh, and it's it's almost a specialty now. And I think it's really cool. It's, you know what, it's, it's, uh, it's enjoyable. Just sitting at the desk all day, regurgitating, you know, stock picks or mutual fund picks that have been sent down from head office is of zero interest to me, right? Like I love getting out there and speaking to the people, understanding the businesses and just, you know, kind of getting in the trenches and, and also making it, you know, we work for our clients, 
right? So when we're investing our clients' money, they want to know, like, what are you guys doing, Kenny, right? Well, we're actually on the phone. We're out there meeting with these companies. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a good learning experience. You learn a lot also, right? Like, I've become experts in, you know, an expert in areas that I never thought I would ever be an expert in, Kenny, right? Just knowledge yeah. Areas. Sorry, endless amounts of opportunities. They just never run out. There's, you know, public markets are always giving you a fresh opportunity of something that is undervalued, right? There's stocks going up and stocks going down every day. And it's exciting trying to find the ones that are going to be going up. I, I hear what you're saying there. I just, in looking at time, any final thoughts? And we'll wrap up the interview. Yeah, I, I think it's been fun chatting with you. You know, like you said, we've known each other a long time, but to share some of our uh, process. And, you know, 28 years of experience for each of us and, uh, you know, bringing that to our, our clients' benefit is uh, super fun every day. We're young enough that I think we've got uh, a few more years in us. So uh, we'll keep, keep at it. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, we just grind away and plug away at it every day, right? Like we don't have the uh, – Grant and I don't have the uh, sexiest stampede party every year. We don't drive the flashiest cars. We don't take the exotic vacations. Um, we're pretty boring guys. But we love what we do and we work hard at it to make sure that when we recommend something to our client that we've done our, our homework and more than just reading a piece of paper on my desk, it's actually kind of walking the walk and talking the talk and getting down the trenches and, and learning about these companies. That's awesome. It's, uh, it's good to hear. I think it's great to hear from an investor perspective of like what to look for when working with advisors. And then also from a public company standpoint. How should I be communicating or they should be communicating to those who are representing money, portfolio managers, investment advisors? So I, I think it's all been great advice. And guys, I just, yeah, thanks for taking the time. It's been a great interview. Uh, great story. Enjoyed it and uh, look forward to let's do it again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.